Let's ask God's blessing again before we start. Almighty God, come upon us, come into us, come among us, by your grace and power through your Holy Spirit, and bless us this day that we shall honor thee, and everything that we say and think will be according to your holy word, for that is where we trust for our faith and our practice in this church, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. I was ordained about six years ago, and shortly thereafter I became your pastor. The sheet that you have in front of you is a sheet that I used for the first two years of my ministry through June of 1986 to outline what was required to make a baptism scripturally valid, what God looked for in a baptism for it to be proper. And I'd like to review it very briefly with you. The first point is a proper administrator. God expects that the man who does the baptizing be an ordained servant of Jesus Christ that preaches the gospel. Deacons or other men, women, children, and others are excluded from performing the ordinance of baptism. That is an ordinance given to God's ministers. They are the ones that are to administer it, oversee it, qualify individuals for it, and actually perform it. Ordained preachers of the gospel. We read that in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, where Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world, teaching them, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. It's teachers of the Word of God that do the baptizing in Scripture. If you were to read the book of Acts, every baptism you find in the book of Acts is performed by a preacher of the gospel, a servant of Christ that's been commissioned to be the preacher of the glad tidings of his word, and to be the administrator of his ordinances. I don't think we have a problem on that point. Point number two, baptism requires the proper subject. That is the person who is baptized. The subject is the person who is baptized. God requires a man in baptism to be a believer. There are a number of churches in our nation that baptize babies. Babies do not believe the Gospels. Babies cannot believe the Gospels. Babies do not have an active conscience. Therefore, they are not fit subjects for baptism. That's why we're Baptists. Because we baptize the way that G John the Baptist baptized. We're Baptists because we baptize the way Jesus Christ was baptized. Jesus Christ was 30 years of age. If there was ever an opportunity, it would have been when Jesus Christ was a baby and was taken to the temple, they should have sprinkled him or poured water upon his forehead. But they didn't. Jesus was baptized at the age of 30. You can read that in Luke chapter 3 and verse 23. But look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And let's reaffirm our position on this point. Brethren, there have been many who have called themselves Baptists in a loose sense of the word or a strict sense of the word who have given their lives for this point that we're now looking at. And that is that the only fit subjects for baptism are those that have an active conscience and that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That believe Jesus of Nazareth is God's Son. That's the necessary requirement for baptism. In Acts chapter 8, we have Philip, a preacher of the gospel, an evangelist by name, preaching to a eunuch of the kingdom of Ethiopia. And we read in verse 36... And as they went on their way, Acts 8.36, they came unto a certain water. 
And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? The eunuch has heard about Jesus of Nazareth. He sees some water, and he asks, Can he be baptized? What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said in verse 37, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he, that is Philip, commanded the chariot, or the eunuch, commanded the chariot to stand still. And they, Philip and the eunuch, went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. I want to remind you that verse 37 is missing from all modern translations of the scriptures. Verse 37 is deleted, lock, stock, and barrel, from modern translations of the Bible. Because in that text is the requirement that a person believe in order to baptism. The proper subject of baptism is a believer. I don't think we have any problem on that point. That point shall remain the same. We're Baptists and we shall be Baptists because the Word of God requires us to be Baptists. We don't baptize babies. Babies could not believe. And Philip would have said, if a baby had asked him, see, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And you've never heard a baby ask that in your life. But if a baby had asked, Philip would have said, wait until you're older. Because until you have a conscience that is able to answer God, baptism doesn't fulfill its purpose. And we'll see that in a moment. Point number three, the proper doctrine. In order for baptism to be valid, to be accepted by God, you must be baptized under and according to the proper doctrine. And the proper doctrine is stated right here in verse 37 when the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That is all you need to believe for a baptism to be valid. You don't need to believe that the Greenville Church is the Church of Christ. You don't need to believe that you are saved by election from before the foundation of the world. You don't need to believe that Jesus Christ is necessarily the incarnate Son versus the eternal Son, though that is implicit in that statement. You may not know the difference between those two points. All you know is that Jesus, a man that walked on this planet, who grew up in a city called Nazareth, is God's son. Implicit in that is the incarnate sonship, though you may not understand the distinction. You do not need to know that the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 are the popes of Rome. All you need to know is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That the man Jesus, raised in Judea at about the turn of our numbering system as far as time, who lived 30 years and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, is God's son. Because if you'll read Acts chapter 8 without some preconceived idea of what's necessary to baptism, all you'll find Philip preaching is about Jesus being the son of God. You won't find him preaching election, nor will you find him preaching church doctrine, nor will you find him preaching about whether the charismatic movement is right or wrong, or whether there's a millennium or not. Those issues are unimportant to a person at baptism. Those issues are not necessary to a person at baptism. All that's necessary is that Jesus of Nazareth is God's Son. That is the proper doctrine. Jesus is not a God. Jesus is not a good prophet. Jesus was not a good example. Jesus was God's Son. That's necessary for a proper baptism. I don't believe we have any problem there. Let's keep going. This is the outline I used six years ago with some of you. Number four, the
the proper mode of baptism. Baptism must be done in the proper way. The mode means how do we get a baptism accomplished? How do we do it? Acts chapter 8 will not leave this passage because it should be sufficient for everyone here this morning. Acts chapter 8, verse 38, He commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Why did they both go down into the water when all they would need to, needed to have done according to most is to stand at the edge of the water and dip a sponge in it and drip a few drips of that water on the eunuch's forehead? They both went down into the water, and the Bible expressly, clearly states they both went down into the water because you've got to get both into the water to have a proper baptism because a baptism, according to Scripture, must show a burial and a resurrection. And those texts I'll not turn you to this morning since you know them. But the Word of God teaches that baptism is a symbol of something, and it is a symbol of burial and resurrection. And the only way you can get a burial and resurrection in water is for both of you to go down into the water, and one man stick the other man under the water, and then raise him up again out of the water. Burial and baptism. Burial and, and resurrection, excuse me. Burial and resurrection are necessary to a proper baptism. No one has ever been buried by a few clods of dirt dropped on their forehead. You bury a man by putting him six feet under and covering him with dirt. That's right. And that's the way Jesus Christ was buried, and we are buried that way in water to show our identifying relationship to Jesus Christ. The proper mode of baptism. It must be immersion. Baptism means immersion. Immersion means baptism. He was John the Dipper. <laughs> if it wasn't for the English language or the Greek language. The translators of the King James Bible simply took the word baptizo out of Greek and transliterated it into English and made it baptized. He was known as John the Dipper. He was known as John the Immerser. He was known as John the Barrier in water. He wasn't John the Sprinkler. I know you could take a field trip to Bob Jones University this afternoon and look in their art museum and you'll see John the Baptist standing in the edge of the water pouring a cup of water over the Savior's head. Now, Bob Jones University may value a piece of art like that. To me, it's a piece of heretical trash. Amen. And the doctrine portrayed on that piece of trash is heresy. That's right. They went down into the waters. I wrote a man this week about the mode of baptism and reminded myself of a few of the points we use in the Word of God to prove the mode. Remember over in John chapter 3, where we read that John the Baptist was baptizing in Anan near to Salem because there was much water there. Now why do you need much water? Because you've got to get a human body down into it, covered up, and then back up out of it. If all we had to do was sprinkle a canteen, would have been good enough on John the Baptist's belt. But that wasn't the case. The proper mode. That's why we're Baptists. We baptize the way that John the Baptist baptized. Now, brethren, point number five. God have mercy on my wretched soul, but he knows that my heart was perfect in the matter. I taught you that a baptism required a proper result. By the proper result, I meant, and I taught you, that when a person was baptized... That event made them a member of a New Testament church. 
so that when a person came up out of the water, they were considered from that point forward to be a church member. That baptism itself was the door to the church, as some like to say. That it was the entry into the visible church of Jesus Christ. That she became a church member by baptism. And I strung a few verses together there that in the honesty of my heart, I believed proved the point, though I had never studied the point adequately. And I want to make this statement right now. When a man is ordained, all that does is give him the authority to preach. Ordination gives a man the authority to preach and to administer the ordinances of God. Ordination does not make a man a know-it-all in the Word of God. If you'll read First and Second Timothy, you'll find that for a man to be a know-it-all, and I use that properly, he must study to show himself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Second right. Timothy 2.15. Ordination does not give a man that storehouse of knowledge. He must acquire that through a proper study and a diligent study of the Scriptures. I had been taught that baptism required a proper result. I never studied it adequately to prove it right or wrong. I assumed it because I was learning other things during the years leading up to my ordination that were far more weighty and important to me than whether baptism had a proper result or not. I never worried about it. It didn't make any difference to me. I couldn't have cared less relative to other subjects. Relative to other subjects. We'll come back to it in a moment. Look at the relation to salvation. I was taught one through five. As your pastor six years ago, I added number six because I knew that Scripture required something else of baptism not contained in the first five. And that is that it better have a proper design. It better have a proper purpose. And I called it the relation to salvation. When a person is baptized, do they understand the relationship of baptism to salvation? Because there are a lot of churches today that believe that baptism is a means or a source or a cause of salvation, and that nullifies a baptism according to this text. 1 Peter chapter 3. This text and about 400 others that tell us that salvation is by the obedience of Jesus Christ himself. That's right. But this text states it plainly about baptism. 1 Peter 3 and 21. The like figure, that is, baptism is a figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Well, baptism saves us, this verse tells us, that Paul, is, Peter, is going to tell us what it doesn't save us from. In parentheses we read, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism saves us by giving us a means whereby we can take our regenerated consciences and give an answer back to God. Baptism does not put away the filth of our flesh. Our sins, which are the filth of our flesh, the lusts of our flesh, the members of our flesh, that war against the law of our mind, baptism doesn't put those away. There are a number of churches that believe baptism washes away sins. It does not. This text tells us it does not wash away the filth of the flesh. It is the answer of a good conscience. If you go into the waters of baptism with an evil conscience, thinking you're coming out on the other side with a good conscience, which a number of churches do, you have defeated the purpose of baptism, therefore your baptism isn't scripturally proper. You go into baptism with a conscience already made good. Christ Jesus made it good with the sprinkling of his blood. 
And you are answering God with your good conscience in the waters of baptism. And if you are not meeting that purpose for the ordinance, you are defeating the purpose for the ordinance. And therefore, it is not a valid ordinance. It must have a proper relation to salvation. There are baptisms, if you were to look at that little chart at the bottom of the page, that meet the first four points of a proper baptism. But they cannot meet what is number six on this page. I then added number seven, because it relates to number five. The faith of baptism. Basically, the point there is that given that there are an incredible number of churches in America all offering some sort of baptism, and since baptism puts you into the church through its proper result, then you better make sure the church you're being put into by baptism is a church that meets the faith of God. That's point number seven. What we're doing this morning and this evening, and however long it takes us, and I hope it doesn't take us too long, points number five and number seven are what the Bible might call dove's dung. They're also known as heresy. Baptism does not result in church membership. The two are so unrelated, they are not related. And I hope to make that so abundantly clear that you will be amazed that we ever swallowed points number five and seven. Baptism does not result in church membership. Therefore, the proper result is not true according to the outline that I used six years ago. I'm now passing out another outline that I've been using for the last four years. For those of you that have been baptized or have sought baptism in the last four years, it is this outline that I've been using for the last four. I changed in the middle of 1986 because points five and seven on the old outline were not true. I have taught you this in little bits and pieces here and there over the last four years. Now it's time to try to lay it out completely from A to Z. If you'll notice these five points, the first four remain the same. We still believe in the proper administrator, a proper subject, the proper doctrine, the proper mode of baptism. But number five, which was the proper result, is gone. And number seven, which is the faith of baptism related to a church, is gone. And we have instead, number five, the proper design, which is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, where your Bibles are still open. Baptism has to be the answer of a good conscience toward God. If anyone was baptized by a proper administrator, they were a believer on Jesus as the Son of God, and they were baptized by immersion. And there are a lot of churches that meet those four, but they were baptized in order for the remission of sins, or in order to wash away sins, their baptism is not valid. <laughs> because it doesn't meet the proper design, and that is point number five. There are no other points in the New Testament that qualify a baptism as being scriptural or, scriptural or not. This is the outline that is now being used and has been used for the last four years. It is where I stand and have stood since <laughs> June of 1986. Now, what happened in June of 1986? In June of 1986... We and I encountered a man who was sick and tired of organized churches. His name was Red Baker. <laughs> Red had joined church after church in the Greenville Pickens area and had been thrown out of those churches so many times because of questioning what they taught and did and wanting to do what was scriptural. 
that he had given up. And it's not an uncommon thing to see people give up on organized churches. Michael Nykirk wasn't very far from that. Because you get so burned out on denominations and associations and other means of pressure on churches where they don't follow Scripture, you give up on it and you think that the, the disciples of Christ can simply wander through this life following the Word of God as closely as they can with their families, and that's enough. And that when they find a congregation they agree with, they can simply come and sort of evolve into being a member. They can sit at the Lord's table with those people because after all, we're all the disciples of Christ. We all believe on Christ. We're all part of the body of Christ is the way the argument runs. And when they use the term the body of Christ, they're talking about all of Christ's elect worldwide that believe on Jesus as Christ. Well, Brother Red wasn't interested in joining our church because he didn't find a specific formal membership in the Bible. It's plainly stated. I think he sees it now, it's rather plainly stated, but then overreacting because of his experience, his mind was clouded against a specific membership in a local church. In my efforts to persuade Red Baker that every local church had a specific membership, and how you became one of the specific members of a given local church, I realized I've been teaching that baptism gets people into this specific membership of a local church. Why, that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. There's got to be a whole lot more to it than that. There is another process the Bible describes that makes church members. And it was at that point, in the middle of 1986, God brought me Red Baker for this point, and I'm thankful for it. Amen. Because here is the point. When a man's ordained, he's given the authority to execute his office, but he's not given the knowledge. It takes a little knowledge to believe something, some more knowledge to teach it, which I had done, the first outline you saw, but I had never defended it. It takes a whole lot of knowledge to be able to defend a point. It is only through the pressure of a challenge do you really see the weaknesses in an argument. You can believe it. You can teach it because you only teach the arguments that help you anyway. I mean, who gets up and teaches the arguments that refute their position? You can believe something and teach something very easily. But to defend something, you have to be able to answer all the objections against it. It forces you to tear down your position and rebuild it, making sure you're not missing any bricks. Well, I didn't have to tear it down because as soon as I looked at it, it fell down. The proper result of baptism just fell apart as soon as you open the two covers of the book you hold in your hand. Nowhere! By implication, by indirect reference, can you find one verse that relates baptism to church membership? Find me one. Find me a verse that relates baptism and church membership. And don't find me a verse that puts baptism and church in the same, the two words in the same verse, unless they're related grammatically and teach a point that baptism and church membership are related. That's right. Listen, I've got, I've got water and regeneration in the same verse. Does that mean that we believe in baptismal regeneration? Let's show a connection. There are none. There are none. You can look at the references I used six years ago, and they don't prove the point whatsoever. I was parroting and repeating 
what I had been taught. Ministers are commanded in Titus chapter 1 and verse 9 to hold fast the faithful word as they have been taught. A man to be qualified for the ministry had better be tenacious in holding fast things he has been taught. However, Titus chapter 1 and verse 9 does not say a minister should hold fast everything he's been taught. It says he should hold fast the faithful word he's been taught. And the proper result of baptism is not a faithful word because it's not found in the word of faith, which is the Holy Scriptures. For two years, I preached something to you that I had not studied as thoroughly as I would have to under a challenge. For the last four years, I have taught in short pieces here and there something different. Now I want to teach it to you fully and completely as I'm able and answer and show you how all the verses that might be used to try and support the baptismal membership theory can be answered ever so easily and shown not to teach that position at all. In the remaining time that we have today, I'd like us to consider, first of all, what is local church membership? Because as soon as you start thinking about local church membership, you realize baptism doesn't have anything to do with it, except as a prerequisite. Before anyone gets confused, by all means, a person must be baptized before they can be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. You hear the preaching of Jesus of Nazareth as God's Son. This is the order of the Bible. You hear preaching about Jesus of Nazareth being God's Son. You are then baptized in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You are then taught everything else. That's right. Baptism comes before you even know there is such a thing as the Lord's table. Baptism comes before, in true evangelism, before you would ever know there was such a thing as a church of Jesus Christ. Now, what we're used to is people coming into our congregation who have never been baptized or who had improper water applications, <laughs> and they'll sit in our church maybe for a month, maybe for six months, maybe for two years, and by that time they've heard a lot of preaching about a lot of things. That's not the way evangelism took place in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you find Philip reading the book, reading Isaiah 53 with a eunuch about Jesus of Nazareth and telling the eunuch, this chapter of Bible prophecy is talking about the man Jesus of Nazareth. And he's baptized in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then, if God is merciful to him, he'll find a pastor somewhere later in his life in a group of believers to which he can join himself, and he learns everything else that Christ commands. That is the order. Jesus is the Son of God. Water baptism in the name of Jesus as the Son of God, and then learning everything else that God wants us to know. But let's consider what is church membership. What is a church? Is a church some mysterious spiritual body that we enter into when we're baptized? Or is a church a specific number of disciples of Jesus Christ in one location who have joined themselves together by voluntary consent and mutual agreement to be a body of Christ and to observe the ordinances of a church such as the Lord's table. What is a church? Is it some mysterious spiritual esoteric body that's floating nebulously around and called in the Apostles' Creed the Holy and Catholic Church? Has anybody ever seen the Catholic Church, as it's described in the Apostles' Creed, ever seen it? It's a it's a no it's a non thing. 
It doesn't exist except in the imagination of the men who penned the words of the Apostles' Creed. And brethren, don't ever let anyone kid you that the Apostles penned the Apostles' Creed. That creed states that we believe in one holy, apostolic, and Catholic church. One church. Would you show me that church? The church in the Word of God, when it's describing an assembly that you enter and join, is a local church. It is a local congregation. It is a local assembly. It is a local group of people who have joined together by mutual consent to follow the laws of Christ and to serve one another under the authority of a pastor, under the authority of Scripture, together. Let's look at that from a few scriptures. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. As soon as you see church membership, everything else just floats away. It's an idea that a church is some mysterious relationship with God that allows you to think that baptism puts you into it. That way you could baptize someone over in Afghanistan who speaks Afghanese whatever they speak over there. <laughs> you could baptize someone in Afghanistan and tell him he's a member of some church. He'd never hear any preaching. He'd never hear from another brother. He'd never communicate with another brother. He'd never sit at the Lord's table with anyone, but some think he'd be a church member. He isn't a church member in any sense of the word, except in the imagination of men. Now those who penned the Apostle Creed would think he was a member of the church. We believe in one holy, apostolic, and Catholic church. Upon baptism, it being the door of the church, according to Roman Catholic theology. And that's where it came from, and we'll get to this point. It is Roman Catholic theology that believes in this nebulous church that's hanging out there someplace, that when you're baptized, you become a member of it. And believe me, you don't have to know a thing about it. You can be a two-day-old baby, have a little water sprinkled on your forehead, and you become a member of the Catholic church. When you read that the Catholic church has 800 million members, 200 million of them don't even know it. <laughs> they're babies and the men that follow that doctrine have members that don't even know it because they have no relationship to the church a church is a specific group of individuals separated from all other that know each other that serve each other that are in submission to one another that have judgment authority over one another that submit to the same pastor abide by the same rules and sit at one table and observe the Lord's Supper Colossians chapter 4, verse 9. Paul says, With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Onesimus, Paul is saying, is one of the Colossians. Onesimus was with Paul. But Paul was saying, he's one of you. He's not one of us. You can't be a member of two churches at one time. Is there an arm in the congregation this morning that's a member of two bodies at one time? You can't be. You are either with one group or you're with another group or a third group or any other group. But you can't be with two groups. Onesimus, and this text tells us a church is a specific group of individuals. And an individual who calls himself a church member knows what group he's part of because he's a member of that body. Colossians 4.9, look at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you. See, Epaphras was with Paul in Rome. But in writing to the church at Colossae, Paul was saying, Epaphras is one of you. He's not one of us. He's one of you. Because church members are specific in a given location that they have joined. And not until they separate from one church can they be members of another church in any proper way. How are church members created? Look at Acts chapter 9. 
How are church members created? God willing, we're going to create a few this evening. <laughs> but I want to preach some of this before tonight. Acts chapter 9. Can you imagine Saul of Tarsus? We read of him in the first verse of this chapter. Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. Now Saul was a bad dude, a mean fellow, a hard persecutor of the church. And he was known in Jerusalem to be Saul of Tarsus, and he had hailed men and women into prison and caused them to blaspheme. He'd done all sorts of terrible things against the churches of Christ. He gets a letter of authority from the high priest to go to Damascus, that if he could find any in Damascus that worshipped Jesus of Nazareth, he'd throw them into prison. Well, on his way to Damascus, he met Jesus. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And then he said, What wilt thou have me to do, Lord? And the Lord said, Go into Damascus, and you'll find a man named Ananias. And he'll take care of the rest. And poor Ananias was at prayer one day, and God said, Saul of Tarsus is going to come to see you. Ananias pulled out his will and signed it. <laughs> Think about the man, Saul of Tarsus, the reputation he had. Ananias was told by Jesus Christ to baptize Saul of Tarsus. Now listen to, listen to Ananias. Look at, look at verse 13. The Lord's talking to Ananias. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here, in Damascus, he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. He had caused others to suffer, but Jesus said, Now it's time for him to suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way, verse 17. He went into the house. He put his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul... The Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as if it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus, and it tells that he went and preached the gospel of Christ. Because he knew the Old Testament well, he was, a, he was able to do that. Ananias baptized Saul of Tarsus. He was then strengthened. Then he was with the disciples at Damascus and most likely, although we're not told specifically, became a member with them. It was a common practice that when you were with the disciples at any given location, you broke bread at the Lord's table together. Saul was baptized by Ananias. No church gave him approval for it. No church said, well, we want to hear your testimony of how you want to join the church. You want to find a home in the church, anything like that. No church ever met with Saul of Tarsus. One minister of Jesus Christ was commissioned by Christ to go baptize the greatest enemy of Christ in the world. And he did it by divine commandment. If the church would have been asked, they'd have said, no way. If Ananias would have been asked, he would have said, no way. He tried to say, no way. But the Lord said, go thy way and do it. So he did it. Things get rough at Damascus, so Paul heads for Jerusalem. I mean, he wants to get back home, the center of Judaism, where he can preach in Jerusalem. And he comes to Jerusalem in verse 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. 
The word is say we don't use much anymore, but it means he tried. He tried to join the church at Jerusalem. It's a church now. It was a church in Acts chapter 2. He tried to join the church at Jerusalem. But they were all afraid of him, and you can't really blame them, and believed not that he was a disciple. How would Paul have tried to join the church? He would have come in and made a public profession that he believed they were the church of God and that God was in them of a truth. Do we have a Bible basis for believing he did that? 1 Corinthians 14, 25, that if a church is run properly, and that early church was run properly, that men who are unbelievers in the church or who want to become part of that church will come forward and make a profession that God is in you of a truth. Paul did that. The second thing we know Paul did is he said he'd met the Lord on the way to Damascus and he'd been converted, was now a disciple of Jesus Christ and not an enemy of Jesus Christ. That's what, it, that's what has to be, by definition, involved in the words of said to join. He tried to join. And the text goes on to say they didn't believe he was a disciple, which implies he was claiming to be a disciple. He stood before that congregation. God is in you of a truth. I want to be part of you. I want to join you. It says that. I want to join you. I've been converted. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Here we see what makes a church member. The approval and the consent of the church. And the church said, forget it. That's what makes a church member. One person making application to the body. I want to become part of this body. But the body has to decide whether they want that member or not. God doesn't have some divine, willy-nilly action of throwing a person into the membership of a church. A church makes church members. God cannot make a church member. God can't make a church member any more than God can make you a baptized believer. You are a baptized believer by the exercise of a will according to precepts given in God's word that God gave. But God doesn't baptize you by some mysterious relationship to him, nor does God make church members some mysterious way. Church members are made by a church receiving a new member. The same way men are put out of the church. God doesn't put men out of the church. Churches put men out of the church. That's why we can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when church judgment is executed, a church is to put out side of that church. God doesn't do it. God asks churches to do it so that he can then get to them outside the church. The blessings of God are within the church, and a church lets others into that blessing. The judgment of God is outside the church, and the church puts members outside the church where God can judge them. It's church action that makes church members. Paul here tried to join. This is the procedure. You come before a group of people. God is in you of a truth. I want to join you. I want to be one with you here. I believe the things you believe. I've been converted. I'm a disciple of Christ. You're disciples of Christ. I want to be with you. I want to sit at the Lord's table with you. I'm willing to submit to your judgment. I'm willing to submit to the pastor you have. I'm willing to meet at your appointed assemblies. I'm willing to abide with the scriptures as you understand them. I'm willing to be excluded from this congregation upon your judgment according to scripture. I'm willing to have you judge me in small matters according to your own personal judgment. All those things are necessary for a church member. You say that sounds awful complicated. That's all very simple. That's all very simple. Paul tried to do that, and they said, no way. They were afraid of him. 
and believed not that he was a disciple. They were not convinced he was converted. It is not a minister that decides whether a man's converted enough to be a church member. It is not God that decides whether a man is converted enough to be a church member. You decide whether a man is converted <laughs> enough to be a church member. You decide with Scripture when a man has sinned and is put out of a congregation according to Scripture. And you will decide as a congregation when a man has exercised sufficient repentance to be brought back into a church. Churches make church members. Verse 27. But Barnabas took him. Now Barnabas had been a member at Jerusalem and he'd gone up to Damascus. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out of Jerusalem. He became a church member after a former member, a preacher, of the Jerusalem church that had been at Damascus, who was an eyewitness of Paul's conversion, at least Paul's preaching in Damascus, came back to Jerusalem and confirmed the testimony of Saul of Tarsus, where he could be taken into the membership of the church at Jerusalem. Churches make church members. Look at Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. Don't ever forget Acts chapter 9. Don't ever forget Acts chapter 9. We are told of a man trying to join. We are told of a man not being able to join. And then we see a man and how he did join. Acts chapter 9 tells us how church members are made. Romans 14. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. There is an exhortation to a church that those that are weak in the faith, they may have weaknesses. They may not have the knowledge you have. They may still have doubts about meat offered to idols. They may still have doubts about Jewish holy days. But nevertheless, receive them. But don't take members in where you're going to be raising doubtful accusations or disputations with them and don't allow any. But weak individuals that come to you, take them anyway. Because they stand before their master and hopefully through a conversion process of being in the church, they will come to know more. Look at Matthew 18 and verse 17. The point we're making right now is a church is a specific number of persons segregated from all others by voluntary association and agreement and the collective judgment of the group. That's what makes a church member, that's what keeps a church member, and that's what ends a church member. Matthew 18, verse 17. These are small matters, but even small matters, when pressed, end up with this situation. Matthew 18, 17. If he shall neglect to hear them, that is the two or three witnesses, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. It is a church that changes its behavior toward a person and puts them out where they're no longer part of the church. They're considered a heathen man, a publican. They're put outside the specific number of individuals that make up the church. Do churches have church roles in the New Testament? We don't read of roles per se, but we certainly read of specific members, and we read of specific numbers of members. The church at Jerusalem before Pentecost had 120 members. You can read about it in Acts chapter 1. There is a specific number of members at any one point in time. And no one is ever surprised in a church by waking up to realize we've got a new member. Because our pastor was in Afghanistan and baptized a war victim. 
Never happens. A church faces an individual and agrees with that individual together whether they ought to be a church member or not. Listen, that poor guy in Afghanistan, even stating he wants to be a member of the church, is sinning without any knowledge. He doesn't even know anything about the church here. You have got to know the church. You have got to be able to say God is in you of a truth. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25. There is mutual obligation to make a church member. And it's the same, it's the same responsibility that undoes a church member, which we've just read here in Matthew 18. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. The apostle is writing about a matter of church judgment. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 12, For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Those outside the authority of the church, the ministry of the church, are free from the judgment of God's ministers. Do not ye judge them that are within. But those within the church are, are under the judgment of the church. Notice, there are some men at any given point in time that are out of the church. There are some men that are in the church. Church membership is a specific number of people at any one point in time. You're either in or out of a local church of Christ. And we are not talking about some nebulous spiritual body. Verse 13, but them that are without, God judges. Churches judge those that are within. Those that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. A wicked person can be put out of a church. A converted person can be put in a church. And it's both done by the church. God doesn't do it. God brings people our way. God providentially converts men. God opens the hearts of men so that they attend unto the things that we preach. God grants them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That's how God adds members to a church. He brings converted people to us where we receive them into membership. That's God adding to himself or adding to his church converted disciples. Every member of this church is handpicked by Almighty God to be a member of this body. That's how God adds to a church. He handpicks temperaments, experiences, gifts of the Holy Ghost and brings them together and then we make the members of this body. God doesn't do it. There's no verse in Scripture that tells us He does it, and there's no way He could do it. Because church membership, by definition, is mutual agreement and consent between two parties. There isn't any body in, on this planet that exists without that. There aren't children of age that don't exist without that. There's not a marriage that doesn't exist without that. All human relationships exist by mutual consent and agreement. A local church is a group of baptized believers of Jesus Christ bound together by certain bonds. What are these bonds? Let's look at them. Acts chapter 2. Certain bonds make church members and make churches. Churches being collections of individuals bound together by certain bonds. Acts chapter 2. Here's the great increase of members in the church at Jerusalem. From 120, they jumped to 3,120 on the day of Pentecost. We read in verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. From that text, church membership involves being of one faith, of one mind. They steadfastly continued 
in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. There wasn't a divergence of opinions. It was one faith. A church is bound together by the bond of one faith. And let's just take these one by one as we see them in the New Testament. Can baptism make one faith? Baptism doesn't make one faith. Mutual consent and agreement between two parties makes one faith. How can two walk together except they be agreed? Well, the first thing we know about church membership is that we're bound together by one common doctrine. And the way we know that is we come to agreement on that. Someone applies for membership, they state, God is in you of a truth. I believe what you are teaching in this church. I want to be part of it. I believe it myself. Then that bond of one faith, of one doctrine, is established by that. The church may say, we don't believe he believes it. Like the Saul of Tarsus. Right. It is by agreement on both parties about this particular bond of one faith, of one doctrine, an apostolic fellowship, and in breaking of bread and prayers. We'll get to the other points in a second. We're bound together by mutual submission. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5.21 Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Every member of this congregation is responsible to submit themselves to each other in this assembly, in the fear of God. You submit yourself in service. You submit yourself in judgment, which we'll look at more closely in a second. You do not claim any rightful authority over other members in this church as the body of Christ. We all submit ourselves one to another. Submission is an active choice by an individual. Submission cannot be created. Baptism doesn't create submission. Neither does marriage create submission. Neither does a child coming of age create submission. Neither does employment necessarily continue submission. All the relationships of submission in this world are by choice. A child of age can decide, I don't want to submit to those people any longer, and he splits the scene by choice. A wife can be insubmissive because she's chosen not to be, and her husband can't even change it without winning her to voluntarily choose to submit. So it is with church membership. Baptism doesn't cause us to submit. We choose to submit to one another in a body relationship where we'll all be, where we'll be subordinate to one another in working together as a body. If your arm does not submit to the rest of your body, your body's a wreck. Every member in here submits to the rest so that we operate as a whole. The value of the whole body is more important than the individual. And there's other texts, brother, I'm not going to look at them all. And you, hopefully you can remember them even now. But we are bound by the bond of submission. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 and verse 12. Here's the third bond of church membership. Put on, therefore, Colossians 3.12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. A church is called together into one body to be at peace with each other and to love one another. 
That is a bond that you agree to when we take in a member. We are all agreeing to love one another, to put on humility, to put on meekness, to put on kindness, to put on long-suffering, and to put on, most of all, the bond of perfectness, which is to love one another and keep peace. That is a bond of church membership. That is a requirement of church membership. And baptism, by no means, creates that. Most people in the Word of God baptized didn't even know charity was the bond of perfectness. It's something taught after baptism. There's a third bond. That's to love one another and to keep peace in the body. The fourth bond is the Lord's table. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. A number of verses could be raised here, but the fourth bond we all agree to is the breaking of bread. The Lord's Supper. The communion service. The communion service is the focal point of church membership. It's the acid test of whether a person's a member or not. If we were to hold communion right now, we would quickly know who were members of this body and who weren't. Now, that's a surprise to some people, because in most churches, they'd give the communion to anybody. Charles Manson could wander in and sit in the back row, and he'd get the Lord's Supper. They don't care. Hey, aren't we all the body of Christ? Aren't we all the members of Christ? Don't we all love Jesus? But that isn't the way communion was in the New Testament. Communion in the New Testament, the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, is for the specific members of that body and them alone. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, the cup of blessing, which we bless. There's the Lord's cup at the Lord's Supper. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? When we offer the cup and drink it, and when we thank God for the bread and we eat it, we break it and eat it, it is the common union around the blood and body of Jesus Christ. But the apostle goes further than that in the next verse. For we, being many, are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. The Lord's Supper is where we show our unity together. The Lord's Supper is the focal point of church membership. You can be ever so faithful. You can sing ever so sweetly and loudly. You can give ever so faithfully to the work here in Greenville. But if you're not a member of this body, you cannot. You do not partake of that one bread. You are not one bread and one body with us. You are not a member of this body. And the common union is, does not include you. The communion of the Lord Jesus Christ is the common union that we all have around him. And you're either in that communion or that common union or you're outside of it. You can't be both. You're in or you're out. And that is the acid test of whether a person is a church member or not. The Lord's table represents our agreement together. It is the highest, most important point of church membership. It is where we see that we are all still agreed together around the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we read over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. There's a yoke in church membership. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? What common union do we have with someone that's in darkness being in this congregation? They should be put out. And that's how we keep the feast without the leaven of malice and wickedness. That's how communion is supposed to be kept by a New Testament church. There is no fellowship, there is no communion when there isn't agreement. Because common union means there's agreement. Paul goes on to say, What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? 
For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Church members have got to be separate from anyone holding a different communion, anyone holding different fellowship, anyone holding to darkness, which in this case is idol worship. They're to be put out, and the church is to separate from them. It's being yoked together. You say, well, that could mean working with someone. Does it mean working with someone who's an unbeliever? Does it mean working with someone who worships Baal? You can... More power to you to go start a partnership with some man who worships Baal. There's not a thing in the Word of God that tells you you can't do that. We, we have to live in this world, and that means we're going to associate with the fornicators of this world and the idolaters of this world. This text is talking about how a church yokes itself together with unbelievers, with worshipers of Baal, and with darkness. And it's by membership. That's where communion occurs. That's where fellowship occurs. And we have to get everything out of our fellowship, out of our communion, out of our yoke, out of agreement with us. Because it's the Lord's Supper that binds us together as a body. It is a yoke that makes our membership unique from every other church on the face of this earth. Each communion requires you people to make a judgment about who's acceptable to God corporately at our Lord's table. Every time we have the Lord's Supper, and we do it carefully in this church to make sure that we can do it honorably. And how do you get to participate at the Lord's Supper? You get to participate at the Lord's Supper by the approval and agreement of the rest of the church. How are you excluded from the Lord's Supper? By the disapproval and judgment of the rest of the church. And baptism doesn't affect the Lord's Supper one whit in any direction. Baptism does not result in membership. That's four bonds. Let's keep going. There's a fifth bond. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8 describes the judgment that you all have over each other. If we have small business matters come up between individuals in this church, small personal matters come up before individuals that cannot be solved by one-on-one -on -one confrontation, that cannot be solved by two or three witnesses, it's then to come before the church and the church judges. That is a bond of church membership. That is a relationship you enter into when you become a church member. And baptism doesn't create that. You create that when you submit to the body and agree, I will submit to your judgment in such matters. And that's not a light thing. That's why when it usually, when it comes up in some churches, people fly off the handle because they can't believe that that body can sit out there and tell them what they're going to do and how they're going to perform. But when you join a church of Jesus Christ, that is understood. And if you don't understand it, you don't know enough yet to become a church member. Or hopefully nothing will come up if you do join that ignorantly until you do know better. But a church that's wise won't take members in until those members understand what church membership involves. Right. And it involves submission to judgment. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let's go to Hebrews 13 instead. Hebrews 13. 
Hebrews 13, verse 7, the Apostle writes, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Remember them that have the rule over you, who preach, who speak to you the word of God. And verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. A church member is bound by this obligation to submit to the pastor of that congregation. Therefore, becoming a church member means you are submitting to the pastor of that given congregation. Every pastor is different. The faith of every pastor is different. Every pastor's rule is different. Some rule well, some don't rule well. But when you join a church, it is submitting yourself to the bond of the pastor's rule and oversight because that's a requirement of membership. That's bond number six. There are six bonds. That is how we are bound together in this body. I don't know of another one. Those are the six. You look at those six things, they include everything we believe, everything we practice, our relationship toward one another, our affection toward one another, the peace we're to maintain, the authority and judgment we have toward each other, the Lord's table and the pastor the church has. That's all included in these bonds that make up a church member. That's why there are some here this morning that are church members. There are visitors here this morning that are not members of this body because they haven't yet submitted to those things. We don't disrespect you. We don't love you because we don't dislike you because you're not a member with us. We're waiting for more members. But there's a difference between the members of a body and those that are not in the body, and those six bonds make up those differences, and baptism doesn't make those six bonds occur. Right. Those bonds occur by mutual consent to join the body and by the body agreeing to receive your testimony that you're willing to submit. How can two walk together except they be agreed? It's impossible. How can 61 walk together except they be agreed? It's impossible. How do we find our agreement? By the process of membership and judgment and the Lord's table. And every time we observe the Lord's Supper, I hope every one of you know you are saying publicly before God and the rest of this church, I am in common union with this body. That's what communion is. What's the purpose of a local church? We've studied that before. It is the synergistic strength found in a group of people working together to help the whole and each other more than themselves. The purpose for a local church is a society of disciples of Jesus Christ who have bound themselves together to help one another be better disciples of Jesus Christ and continue as disciples of Jesus Christ until he returns. A church is not a dead membership role. The average church, the average Southern Baptist church, they're the ones that keep all the statistics. The average Southern Baptist church in the United States has 25% of the names on their membership role they call non-resident members. What they mean by a non-resident member is a person that was once a member of their church that they do not any longer have their address. He is an unknown person. On any given Sunday, another 50% of the remaining members do not attend. On any given Sunday, 50% of the rest of the membership does not attend. Now, if you can take 75 and multiply it by 50%, 37% of a Southern Baptist Church's membership attends on any given Sunday. 
Those are their statistics. They keep great track of these things. I wouldn't want to keep track of them if it looked that bad. If I took 25% of your body weight, and I don't care where you took it from, for most of you, 25% of your body weight and hacked it off and hid it from you so where you couldn't find it, how would your body perform? If I took another 50% of what's left and it never showed up to help the other half, how would you perform? And they call themselves the body of Christ. Every Sunday and every assembly we have, we all ought to be here. That's our responsibility. We are bound together that way to help each other be disciples of Jesus Christ that will persevere and continue and be faithful while we're here in this world. That is the purpose of this church. The purpose of this church is not some mysterious thing. It is not some mysterious entity that God gets some great pleasure out of. God has banded us together for the strength that we can give one another. I've been over that so many times, but I, we will look at one text. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I've taught this because it's so important. I hope this is one mark that makes the Greenville Church different from other churches, that we emphasize our responsibility toward each other. We are a family. We're the household of God. We're the household of faith in this location. We are a fellowship. That means we're all fellows pursuing the same goal. We're a body, as the Bible calls us over and over again. And like your arms and legs and eyes and ears function so well together, naturally, instinctively, that's how this body is supposed to function together. Naturally, instinctively, with the bond of charity causing us to do service for one another. Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 23, here, here it was so important for these Jews to hold fast, their, these Hebrews to hold fast their profession. The apostle writes, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love's, love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. Our greatest obligation that God has left us with in this world is to hold fast the profession of faith we made at our baptisms. When we were baptized, we claimed Jesus Christ as our Lord. We claimed that we were burying our old man under that water and that we were rising to walk in newness of life. That's what we claimed. We gave God the answer of a good conscience, thanking him for what Jesus Christ did for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. That was our profession of faith, our hope of eternal life is based on what Christ did for us. And I now identify with Christ and purpose to serve Him the rest of my life. Our purpose now is to hold fast that profession of faith. These Hebrews had made that profession. But they needed to hold it fast, not to give it up. They needed to persevere. And what has God ordained to help us do that? But the assembling of ourselves together. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Verse 23. And let us consider one another, verse 24, to provoke unto love and the good works. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. One another. We ought to be exhorting each other in this congregation to hold fast the profession we all have made. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. In their case, it was the day of the destruction of Jerusalem when they would receive the greatest temptation that could be possible that if it were not for God's mercy toward the elect, even the elect wouldn't have made it. They had to hold fast with the coming destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman armies. For our, our case, 
Though it's going to wax worse and worse until the time Jesus Christ finally returns for us Gentiles. And as we see that day approaching, with the world situation getting worse and worse, we need to be exhorting one another day. That's the purpose of the local church. That purpose is not met through baptism. That purpose is only started in baptism. In baptism, we make a profession of faith, but we then come together with others in order to try to maintain that profession of faith. A local church is a group of Christ's disciples voluntarily joined together practically for mutual strength and encouragement in gospel duties. It is not a mysterious body or a spiritual body apart from that practical relationship. A church is foremost practical. God the Holy Spirit indwells that practical body, but it is foremost a practical working relationship where we as disciples of Christ have joined together to serve God in a body and to serve one another, to hold fast our profession and to be faithful to the Christ that we are following. And we'll study more this evening. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. And I hope that all of you, if you have questions, you'll feel free to ask and that you'll consider these things soberly. Our church is an important thing God has given to us. It's something that we should hold as a great privilege and that we should guard how members are taken in and how members are put out and we should understand the process carefully because it's only upon understanding these things carefully that we'll be able to preserve this church.